when the stakes are high and the competition keen, um, being a little different, I think, um, makes people be a, a little bit more critical. Uh, and I have had people tell me they couldn't hire me because I was a woman. I've had some retaliation when I've stood up and said that's not fair, which, you know, I'll never stop doing that. This episode was made possible with the support of Medtronic Aortic. Aortic disease doesn't stop, neither do you. Global aortic experts share their perspectives on this evolving healthcare landscape. Watch their video at medtronic.com forward slash aortic partner. Medtronic Aortic, navigating change together. You're listening to the Vascular Podcast from Radcliffe Vascular. Today's host is Professor Ramesh Tripathi. We have today with us um, on this podcast uh, about women in vascular surgery uh, four uh, of the leading women vascular surgeons in the United States. Um, to start with, I have uh, Professor Judy Freischlag, who is a, uh, a stellar vascular surgeon, a past president of uh, Society for Vascular Surgery, and currently the CEO of Wake Forest Baptist Health in Winston-Salem in, New, uh, in North Carolina. Julie, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, we have Erica Leet Mitchell. She's a uh, professor of surgery at University of Tennessee um, in Memphis. Uh, Bernadette Olivola, uh, professor of surgery, director and of division of vascular and endovascular surgery at Loyola University in Chicago. And Shipra Arya, who is associate professor and chief of vascular surgery at VA. Stanford, University of Stanford in California. Welcome all of you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have, uh, you know, such leading women vascular surgeons uh, in a podcast with me. And, uh, you, you know, you're all so accomplished leaders in vascular surgery. Uh, in the beginning, I want you to describe your journey into medicine as uh, women physicians and uh, what uh, support or difficulties you had in your, um, in your journey. Uh, we'll start with Julie, then Bernadette, then Erica, and then Shipra. Julie. Okay, well, thanks for asking. You know, I, I do think we've all got different journeys, and, and we all have some background that's unique uh, and, and certainly some international flair uh, to a couple of us as well. For me, I was born in a small town in Illinois, you know, and um, my mother was a teacher and I skipped first grade uh, mainly because my older brother was a year ahead of me and and I read all the books he brought home. And, and the reason they skipped me is I talk a lot, which you all know I do. And, and I was a discipline problem. So they moved me up a grade. Um, and with that, my mom basically told me to go get educated. And I went off to be a teacher and they closed education and I ended up in medicine and thought I was going to be a pediatrician. But when I was a third year student, I walked into the OR uh, to get surgery out of the way. And, and that was my place. You know, you, I walked in and realized this is what I do. This is what I see. And then when I was an intern, my first rotation was two months with Wesley Moore on a vascular service. And it was every other night in the house. It was all open. We were just starting to do distal bypasses. You know, we had carotids that had all sorts of issues because we didn't work up their hearts. I mean, it was a whole different world in the 80s in Vascular, but it was so challenging. And he was so encouraging. I was his second woman fellow, actually, uh, and there was no match then. So as I went through my career, he was just so supportive, probably one of the first sponsors I've ever had, uh, even though back then we didn't call it that. And he really made me realize that I, too, could do whatever I wanted, not only clinically, but research-wise. And probably my second sponsor really was Jonathan Town. Um, he hired me in Milwaukee as his number two person. And I ran the VA, Vasker, and then the whole VA and, and ran a lab. That's where I first started smoking rabbits to do uh, Vasker intervention. And, and that's probably when I started my leadership uh, course and went back to UCLA as division chief and then became a department chair and then a, a dean and a CEO. So I think Part of it is mine was sponsors, you know, uh, Westmore, Jonathan Town, who was incredible to make that happen. 
and then going off with others, uh, such as Ed Miller, who hired me as a chair. I think the key to my career was to be a really good surgeon, right? You have to go do that first and, and love your patients and love what you do. And then you can go lead once people know that you're really good at what you do and then you transfer sort of what your energy is from your own career to others. Uh, I moved around a lot. I've worked at multiple institutions, multiple universities. Uh, right now, you know, I'm, I'm a dean and a CEO. We just did a new partnership with Atrium Health out of Charlotte. So now I'm part of an $11 billion corporation with 8 million patients. And we're starting a new medical school and looking at how we could do things differently. And, and I think this pandemic has made us all think about, you know, what kind of things we want to continue to do and those that we don't. But it's been a great career. I was only the sixth woman in the States to get her vascular certificate. Um, and, uh, and now there's many, many more. I think we're up to over 300. Uh, so back then, very few women were vascular surgeons. And it's just so exciting to see people come behind me. Benedict. Well, Julie, I'm, I'm glad you bring up the importance of sponsorship and mentorship. And I think we probably all can think of those uh, instances in our education, our careers, where really figuring out the next step or you know, doors opening or opportunities hinge on uh, those who have, um, you know, stepped the same uh, way before us and, and who recognize our skills. So um, I, I also uh, grew up in a non-medical uh, family. I grew up in Long Island, New York, and I was the first individual in my uh, family to attend college. And so uh, figuring out how to get to the point of applying for medical school and then residency, I, I sort of uh, just figured it out as I went. Um, but uh, during medical school, um, you know, I was thinking everything but surgery. It didn't occur to me. And uh, during the course of my third year um, clerkship, I worked with several surgeons who recognized that I had potential. And I think um, just having uh, leaders in surgery identify a skill set, perhaps in, in a, even a third-year medical student that might be suitable for you know a career in surgery, um, really uh, can change the you know the course of things. So I worked with a few surgeons in hepatobiliary surgery who uh, basically said, "Hey, you know you're good at this. Let's let's let you step up to the plate and." Um, you know, uh, demonstrate your skills in the operating room. And that really got me interested in, um, in surgical uh, specialty. And I also had the opportunity to uh, work along alongside some really enthusiastic vascular surgeons as a general surgery resident that basically, you know, made me think, okay, there's nowhere else to be, you know, all the benefits of this field. Um, so throughout the course of my training, having uh, faculty members who actually, you know, sat down and identified um, my skill set and recognized that and offered me opportunities to get involved um, really, um, I think, set the stage for stepping up to other leadership levels. So I've spent my whole career so far, 15 years at Loyola, where I've um, advanced up the, you know, rank, academic ranks and now leading a really um, very strong uh, division of vascular surgery. So part of what I get joy out of is returning that, um, you know, that the favor I feel like my uh, faculty gave me as a student in, um, you know, in recognizing the the potential that I had. So I, I get much joy out of mentoring students and trainees, uh, you know, in surgical fields or vascular, just to sort of recognize the excitement of our field. Um, so I'm fortunate to be able to sort of pay that back to the um, to the learners that I work with here at Loyola, which has really made my career here very uh, gratifying. Well, my pathway certainly wasn't straight. Um, I'm one of five children. My father was a petroleum engineer, and as a result. We were all born and raised outside of America. And my early years were, my formative years were in Zimbabwe. And um, after a while, my parents bought a farm there. And in our, 
our house became sort of the triage center for all the workers on the farm if they got injured or had medical illnesses. So early on, I decided I want to be a doctor and sort of help people. And it, it wasn't until after I completed a degree in engineering, so that like father, like daughter, I attended Colorado School Mines, like my father, that I realized I was on the wrong track. So I started volunteering in a hospital, and it was that I knew this was what I wanted to do. So I went back, did the pre-med requirements, got into medical school. And I early thought I would be a plastic surgeon because my sister had a cleft lip and palate, and that sort of was very formative in my youth. But it was during my rotations at Denver General that I was mentored to be a vascular surgeon. So it's interesting because I'm coming full circle around after a 12-year career at at the at um, Oregon Health and Science University to now re-enter academia after being away for several years to now join University of Tennessee Regional One Health, a county hospital, um, as their medical director for vascular surgery. So my pathway certainly hasn't been direct, but it's the journey has been incredible. I've met incredible um, mentors, supporters, uh, residents, students, and I, I cannot imagine life as anything other than a vascular surgeon. Shipra. Um, so my journey actually um, began in India. I, I am um, an immigrant. I was born and brought up in India, and I did um, medical school in India. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm from a stereotypical Indian family where, you know, uh, medicine and, and engineering are the, are the only two respectful professions. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, uh, that was the choice I was given. Well, would you like to be a doctor or an engineer? And I said, I'll be a doctor. So, uh, my elder sister, she was a physician. She entered medical school before me. And, um, I went into medical school thinking I wanted to be a surgeon, but, um, throughout medical school in India, especially, um, there, I had no female surgical role models, uh, and surgery was not a field that was encouraged. So I went through a whole lot of self-doubt, but in my mind, I always knew that surgery is where I was the happiest. Um, I loved the operating room. I was able to find um, a couple of um, uh, Indian surgeons who encouraged my passion and said, yes, I have the skills and I should definitely apply for it. Um, but I decided to come to the States because I really did not, um, have any role models. And I thought that, you know, to be a surgeon, maybe I just need to be in a place would be, which would be more accepting, uh, of women in surgery. So, um, I came to the United States, uh, with that goal in mind, um, and met some wonderful people. Uh, I actually first went to Boston to do a master's in public health at Harvard School of Public Health. And um, this is a, a story that I've told Julie, but she came there when she was chair at Hopkins to give grand rounds at Harvard Medical School, and I attended them. Uh, and she brought like two chief residents who were both women, and her talk was about women in surgery. And I was so inspired, and it really validated my commitment that, you know, uh, of all the self-doubt that had been there, because really there had been no other medical student, female medical student from my school for 50 years who had gone into surgery that, and, uh, it, it was a moment that I still remember that, you know, I, it validated me that I'm doing the right thing. I'm following my passion and this is what I need to do. Um, vascular surgery chanced upon, uh, me in my first year of residency, uh, when I met some really wonderful vascular mentors at, uh, Creighton University and University of Nebraska. In terms of um, Heracles Pepinos, um, uh, Timothy Baxter, they were they were just really encouraging. Um, and once I put a few stitches on an aorta by femme, there was just no looking back. You know, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So uh, it's it's been a really great career so far. Um, I uh, you know I've, I'm on a path where. I'm pursuing um, health services research, and I just got my first um, uh, large multi-center health intervention trial funded. And it's just rewarding to see all these efforts um, 
come to um, life with the help and support of all these sponsors and mentors that I've met along the way. Uh, and to give that back, you know, I'm training the next generation of, you know, surgeon scholars and surgeon scientists. So uh, that's the most rewarding part of my career, I feel. Um, I'm at the VA mostly. My patients are such a, uh, um, you know, a group of people with high vascular disease burden, but it's so rewarding to actually take care of them. Um, so uh, it's, it's been a fantastic journey so far, and I'm looking forward to the next chapters. Great. Um, these are very fascinating stories, and uh, I believe it will be so inspirational for the young residents and students listening um, uh, to this podcast. Um, but within these beautiful stories, did you find any stumbling blocks? Julie? Well, sure. You know, it, when I was out there, um, I tell a story when I went to interview for medical school. This was in the mid-70s. I had one interview at Southern Illinois University with one white man who was a family medicine doc, older, who looked at me and said, you'll never be a doctor, and he rejected me the next day. And then I went up to Rush, and I met a woman who was a histologist, and we had both read the same book, Watership Down, the day before. So the next day, I got in early decision. You know, both are unfair, right? But I liked number two because <laughs> I got in, right, to do it. Uh, my class in medical school was 42% women because um, the senior associate dean, Norma Wagner, actually decided to go after women. And, and so back in there, the normal percentage was 10%. Um, I probably didn't see or didn't recognize um, lack of opportunity as I trained uh, because I was that generation that was every other night in house. It was a parental program. There were three women in my class of interns at UCLA. One went into anesthesia. One went into plastic surgery. We actually sort of prayed to get cut because it was so tough, and, and I made the cut. Um, I probably saw more... Um, people standing in my way as I made it up the ladder. Uh, so when I trained at UCLA, they had already finished a woman in 1980. So even though I was the sixth woman to finish, um, I never really felt that um, there was anything against me because it was tough for everybody. However, as I've gone up the ranks and looked at jobs um, and actually competed for opportunities, I have had deans tell me they couldn't, I couldn't be chair of surgery at one of the major universities because they never had a woman chair before. Um, I've had people um, tell me that I couldn't be on, on the team because of my gender. Um, probably the worst ones are when they don't give you it and they don't tell you it's because it's gender, they act like it's because you're not worthwhile. And I've seen that not only in um, all forms of academia, but certainly some. Um, some parts of our leadership in Vassar. I mean, I, I'm the only one woman chair, the only woman SVS president ever. And, and frankly, I was the only, the first woman chair of the Board of Regents of the American College of Surgeons. And that was in the hundredth year of the American College of Surgeons. And I will be the fifth president of the American College of Surgeons. But when, it, the, when the stakes are high and the competition keen, um, being a little different, I think, um, makes people be a, a little bit more critical. Uh, and I have had people tell me they couldn't hire me because I was a woman. I've had some retaliation when I stood up and said, that's not fair, which, you know, I'll never stop doing that. I think it's better. Um, and I think the new generation of surgeons, say under the age of 40, have trained with women and trained with people of color and international. So they actually know that's the team. Um, but I do think there's still uh, stigma uh, about how uh, we approach leadership and, and how we do things. And, and certainly, my leadership style is very different than others. Um, but I think partly, you know, being uh, transparent, you know, being fair, uh, being inclusive is, is helpful. However, looking at that, and, and the other women can comment on this, I actually, when someone says something stupid to me or says I can't, I must admit there's a piece of me that goes, let me show you. So when I look back at those things where they didn't let me do it, 
there's a, because I looked at, I don't know, 10 chairs for surgery, multiple deanships. You know, when they said I couldn't, there was a piece to me that just said, all right, well, you're missing out. And I, I think if we can teach those that are perhaps a bit different to not let that think that you're not worthwhile or you're in a posture or whatever, but make them realize they really miss the boat in you. Uh, I think is because um, we really need more people, more women for sure, and more people with diverse backgrounds and leadership roles where you don't have that happen. And I, I can't think of a time where it, I didn't get something, but I didn't bounce into something else that was better. You know, when I didn't get the chair of surgery at Denver, I didn't get the chair of surgery at UNC or at Michigan, uh, but then I ended up at Hopkins all right, that's pretty good. You know, so part of it is that, you know, it does bounce you to the right way and you don't want to work with people that don't appreciate you. Um, but I, I think that um, if you look at patient care, I tell you, shippers at the VA now, there's nothing like a VA patient that just appreciates any physician. And when I came through, I've done lots of my research in the VA and those VA patients just loved anyone. And they're so, they were so loving when I was a resident and so loving when I was a faculty member when really there weren't that many women surgeons. So I do think um, uh, the, the, affordable, the patients afford you that ability to be incredible as you partner with them. And I think that's where I, I really got my strength and also mentoring, you know, making sure just like what Bernadette described um, is that making sure you bring people along with you. That episode that Shipper mentioned about Harvard, I didn't ask if I could bring those chief residents. I just decided I was going to because I had the, as you membership, where they were all really tall. They were all about six feet tall. I, I had these three, six feet tall uh, residents. Uh, one is a pediatric surgeon at Michigan. One is a breast surgeon in Pennsylvania. And, and uh, one is head of transplant surgery now in Alabama. And they were all tall. They're like six feet tall. So I brought these three, six feet tall women with me saying this is the future of surgery. And, and I just said, they're here. <laughs> so, so the other thing I've learned is you just show up and say, I'm doing this and, and let people think whatever they want or whatever they say and that you just do it your way. Well, I, you know, I, I believe that uh, one of the most dangerous statements anybody can make is it's never been done before, especially for, to give women, you know, their place, their rightful place if they deserve it. Um, and also, I, I gather what you're saying is that uh, resilience on the part of women, despite failures, is so important that if they keep at it uh, and keep building their profile, success will come eventually. Correct. And I think we also need to play it forward. I, all three of these women, uh, I actually have uh, had, had conversations with. I, I helped Bernadette negotiate her deal. I, I talked to Shipper about her move. I've spoken to Erica about some of the changes she's going through. I think that's my role now, too, is to also make it a little easier so you can sort of maybe slide into it instead of climbing up a ladder. Perfect. What about you, Bernadette? Yeah, um, definitely, you know, I think we all um, encounter the small little speed bumps, you know, and, and then the bigger speed bumps. One, one um, uh, instance of that I can recall in my career is is my position currently. So um, as chief of our division. So uh, earlier in my career, I think I was about six or seven years out of training and our division chief left and the chair of my department asked me if I wanted to be considered for the position. Uh, and I, ha I did a lot of thinking about it, honestly. And most of my thoughts were about what was best for my group, my partners. And uh, at the time, I was about to deliver a baby, you know, so I was thinking about my family and um, and I declined the opportunity. I, I basically said, look, you know, I think my partners need a more senior uh, leader, someone with more experience. And right now is just not the time for me, uh, which I was, you know, I was fine with. But what happened was about three, four years later, our new division chief came and left, and here we were with another leadership opportunity. And so when that uh, opportunity came up, my chair um, didn't approach me. And when I approached 
the chair. And I said, you know what? I have have three, four more years of experience under my belt. I, I'm re- I've learned a lot more about how, you know, how to run a, a division and lead a division. Um, he didn't take me seriously. And he said, you know what? You weren't interested last time. Um, I, I'm not sure you're, you're ready for this, or this is the opportunity for you. Uh, so I had to do a lot more <laughs> convincing, I feel like, um, to, to demonstrate my readiness for, for this position. So I honestly, you know, it was not something that fell into my lap. Um, as an internal candidate, I really had to fight for this position. And so thanks, Julie, for your advice during that time period. Um, but, you know, I think had I been discouraged by that, I might have, you know, shrunk back. Um, but I decided I was ready and I I, I thought I would um, be able to step up to the plate. And I was at a different point in my career. Um, you know, I think in situations where we, you know, we aren't necessarily um, looked at as someone ready to step up for the role. I think sometimes we have to have, you know, the, our own confidence to really push for what we think um, is the right career move. So that's just one example of uh, a situation that I think could have gone a different way had I said, okay, I guess I, maybe I'm not ready. Okay, I'll wait for something else. Uh, and I think, I, you know, I think we've done very well here. I, you know, I have, I'm very proud of the division that, um, that I've helped to build here. So, um, so that's just one example that I can think about. When you should mention also, uh, Bernadette, you had to clean up a mess. I mean, there was, a, well, there was, was a lot yeah. of work and I can say it that was, you can, you, it was, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you did it with grace and style. Um, and because and, I had visited during that time with your new person and all that, and, and you came right. in and you just lifted them up. You said, okay, we're going to go forward. And, and actually, I think that's um, a great lesson as we look at racial equity and all the things going on now. We could go and, and spend many hours in 10 years ago, but we need, and you did a great job just moving forward. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Erica, what about you? I um, had certainly encountered this even in engineering school. Colorado School Mines was 2% women when I started and finished engineering uh, degree. And I was told early that I didn't belong there and I belonged in cosmetology school. And Julie, to your point, it, it just made me put my foot down and say, watch me now. You know, that's, not, that's not who I am. And you know, I, my general surgery, residency was you know, not with very many women and I was the first woman fellow in vascular surgery at Oregon Health and Science University, the first woman faculty within the division of vascular surgery and I certainly encountered gender bias, pay inequity and barriers in obtaining leadership positions, but I didn't let it stop me and I I you know again put my foot down and said this is not the end of the road for me. And you know, I fought and prevailed, and and I think you know, when you do that, you open doors for the next generation behind you. It may not impact your own life personally, but you're certainly going to have an impact down the road. And I feel like that's maybe more where I've contributed in terms of not letting these barriers stop me, and certainly pulling down some of these barriers for future generations. When you look at the AAMC data, the last 30 years, women have represented 50% of the medical school class, but yet in surgery, they only represent 38% of the general surgery residents and 39% of surgical subspecialty residents, of which women make up 0.7% of all residents, in, you know, so women in, in subspecialty surgery residencies. And we make up 30% of assistant professors, 22% of associate professors, and 13% of the professors. And then when, as you climb up higher and higher up the ladder, as Julie has, you know, has certainly expressed, those numbers drop even further. I mean, Julie's been the only woman who's been the president of the Society for Vascular Surgery. And how long has this society been in, in, in record? So, you know, I do think 2020 has been a pivotal year with, with what 
occurred in like multiple events that I, I think is bringing focus to the issues and and how we can approach them and and stronger as a as a group versus individually. Uh, Shipra. So I, I agree with all the points that have been raised. You know, I think all of us have faced um, adversity and bias uh, along the way. Um, you know, I, in India, as a medical student, when I shared with senior residents and some faculty about my intentions through surgery, I was verbally told that this that is never going to happen. This is not a woman's field, a woman's job. And that, you know, solidified my resolve to actually come to the States. Um and I've had the intersectionality of bias of race and gender um, in, in a way because of the color of my skin, my immigrant status. And, um, you know, um, I've been told to, you know, think carefully and calibrate my expectations or ambitions based on the fact that I, I am at that intersection. But like a lot of, uh, like all... Um, Julie, Bernadette, and Erica have said that, you know, the resilience that we all bring to um, our work uh, and our general um, existence carries us through a lot of those barriers. But it, in a way, it shouldn't be, you know, we need to get to a point where it's not groundbreaking and it's not earth shattering for, all, for us to have these positions of leadership, because the resilience you know, you sometimes uh, at at some point in your career, people start, you know, um, weighing the pros and cons and the resilience wears down and the um, there's this accumulated burden of the um, difficulties and adversities that you can take. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, what we need to do and what we are all doing is sort of take carrying this forward and making sure that the people coming behind us it's not earth shattering for a, a woman to be SVS president and chair of surgery. And it's not earth shattering to, you know, be able to um, take on a leadership role that you previously declined. And it's not earth shattering to, um, you know, pivot in your career and um, uh, it, it, which is routine for, you know, uh, other uh, for, for men to do in their life, but it should be the same for women. And that's the space we need to get to, that uh, resilience is not the only thing that you need. It, it should be easy to make those, um, to achieve those milestones. Perfect. So what you're saying is that there has to be equity, there has to be inclusion, and uh, also, uh, irrespective of diversity, everybody should have a place uh, on the table. Um, with that in mind, I want to bring uh, Bernadette back into the discussion. Uh, you are a member, uh, lead member of the SVS Task Force on Diversity, uh, Inclusion, and Equity. Uh, what has SVS done for, uh, in, the, in these areas, and uh, um, what uh, are the future plans uh, you know, regarding uh, these issues? Yeah, so I uh, co-chaired the task force over the past year, um, and at the culmination of um, that year, the task force handed a list of over 40 uh, suggestions or recommendations to the leadership of the SVS, who was really uh, very receptive to you know receiving guidance and instituting changes. Um, and, and one of those changes was to establish a uh, permanent committee uh, on diversity, which uh, Vince Rowe is now chairing, um, and I'm also uh, sitting on the committee. But um, some, some really great changes happened uh, as a result of the recommendations. Some of those relate to uh, the diversity on the editorial board of the journals uh, of vascular surgery um, and and um, you know the the uh, appointment of a diversity um, champion you know um, associate editor on the JBS uh, journal and and a concerted effort at just looking at the editorial board and taking inventory as to whether it was uh, diverse and whether the 
the population on the editorial board really represented who we are as vascular surgeons and where we want to be in terms of diversity. So lots of changes happened, diversifying uh, the editorial board, uh, encouraging uh, a diverse group of individuals to um, participate in uh, journal publications as, uh, as um, journal re um, reviewers, as peer reviewers. Uh, we now have a limit on the number of leadership positions or committee positions that any individual can have in order to really just bring a larger group of individuals in. So um, there was no real official limit in terms of how many roles one member of the SVS could play uh, on committees. And now there's a limit of two. So yeah, any individual uh participating um, on committees can be on two committees. And what that does is open up a whole bunch of positions for a more diverse group of individuals to come on board. Um, as part of the uh, diversity committee, I uh, ha now have a standing role on the appointments committee. So all the discussions regarding committee appointments, um, you know, there, there are a few other individuals who are part of the conversation and, you know, sort of bring awareness to um, the, um, you know, the diversity of the group of individuals who are willing to take um, leadership roles. The, um, the SVS also over the past year um, really invigorated a leadership development program um, that's offered opportunities for uh, a again, a diverse group of individuals to not only, um, you know, be part of our field, but to uh, get involved and then to, to really get the background to lead and to step up to the next level. So the leadership development program that the SVS established, that was before the task force, but um, has focused on providing support uh, for uh, individuals who uh, participate in the leadership training program to to seek other uh, opportunities. And so there are some diversity related uh, scholarship funds that are available. Um, so those are just some examples of what's happened um, in the upcoming month or so. Um, the JVS will put out a supplement dedicated to diversity. So we've compiled a, a bunch of um, of uh, manuscripts focusing on all different aspects of diversity and things we haven't thought about yet. So I think that'll be helpful. Shipra contributed to that um, and, and Julie as well. And I think, um, you know, this is opening up the eyes of those in our field. And more importantly, I think it's setting an example for uh, individuals, you know, who are considering vascular surgery as a field. When they see that the SVS is focusing uh, on really critically looking at how we can, um, you know, provide equity and opportunities within the SVS, um, it seems uh, like a much more attractive field to enter, I think. So um, I could go on and on. There, there's a whole bunch going on, but um, all positive things. Oh, great. Um, do you think that this could have happened much earlier? Well, um, you know, it's happened earlier, about 10 years ago, um, you know, there was uh, some focus on diversity in the supplement, but the problem was um, none of the recommendations really got instituted as, as permanent changes in, in the structure of how we, you know, do things. So, um, so we're looking at considering some uh, bylaws changes and commitment to uh, leadership development. Um, for uh, underrepresented uh, minorities in vascular surgery that will really um, establish a change that'll go forward. So, um, you know, if we just, let's say, for example, we look at the editorial, editorial board now of JVS and we say, okay, it's not diverse enough, let's diversify it. Unless we have a system that looks at reevaluating that on a regular basis, and we let the cards fall where they may, we'll probably lose that diversity component. So instituting sort of policy changes that ensure that um, that the change will continue on forward will um, 
will, I think, provide, um, you know, support for the changes that we institute now really carrying on and, and, and not reverting back. Uh, Bernadette, I know you have to go. Uh, so thank you for your contributions. I really appreciate it. Um, I will go to Julie now. Julie, you've been the past president of SVS. Um, and what, what was the scenario at that stage in terms of, you, you know, um, uh, pushing forward the issues of uh, equity, inclusion, and diversity? And why, why things happened so late uh, and had to have a, an environment like 2020 for things to happen? Yeah, I think initially it was a pipeline, right? So I told you I was the sixth woman to finish uh, in DAFCO and get her boards. When I was a division chief, I was the only woman division chief in the country uh, between um, 1993 and 1998. And so, I'm sorry, 1998 and 2003. And partly, uh, some of it is, you know, when we go to look at things and do things, we tend to choose those that look like us. All of us do, you know, and there's nothing better when I walk into a room and see all women. I like that, you know, to do it. So, um, and, and also a lot of Africa surgeons, that was their end game. They were going to be an Africa surgeon division chief and they loved it. So they stayed for a long time. So looking at term limits of some of these jobs, I think can be very important to help turnover, similar to what Bernadette just said, you know, how, how do we make sure there's turnover and acceptance to do that? So when I was a division chief, you know, just getting involved on the committees and, and getting a position uh, uh, was really important. I do remember uh, having a conversation with a couple really important leaders uh, of the Vasper Society, um, and we were discussing very loudly the possibility of a separate board of vascular surgery. And I happened to be on the board because of the association academic surgery. I wasn't there because of vascular. Because what I did is found leadership positions outside of vascular surgery when I look back. So I was very active with the association academic surgery, the American College of Surgeons. And so I was sort of enthralled in that whole board issue. And if I were to tell you, um, one of the issues was that I really didn't think they needed a separate board. We couldn't afford it. We could make this happen. And so in those days where it was my time really to be president, uh, because of my views on the boards, I actually think I was overlooked for a bit. But then I went off and did something else. I became chair of surgery at Hopkins, which was quite notable, you know. So I think, again, when they tell you no, you go do something else. I think when I was uh, the treasurer and then initially, then on to the vice, uh, the president, vice president, president, elect, and president, we did do a lot of inclusive things for women. Uh, we we had dinners. We made sure women were on committees, and and I did choose the committees. But it was very informal the way we did it. So when I went to add people to committees, they looked like me, right, to do it. And now we have a pipeline. So I think the thing that's changed over the last ten years is we have an incredible pipeline. And if you look at who we did boards with, as far as the examinees and examiners, there used to be only two or three women examining, and now I'm pretty sure it was thirty percent, if not forty percent, of the examiners were women. And my, I think my examinees were 40% women, and there were many people of color. I mean, it really, I, I actually noted that at our co virtual cocktail party, that we're, we're getting to a place where we do have opportunity, and we just need to pay attention. So I think part of it's pipeline, part of it's culture, you know, looking at what, what is happening and what's the next thing that's going on. Um, so I, I think all of it together makes a difference, and it's just part of the time. Um, Erica, what systemic steps can divisions and societies take to encourage and protect women interested in vascular surgery? Well, I think we, we can step back because it's not just vascular surgery. When you, when you look at being a woman as a surgeon in sort of a prototypical or stereotypical male environment, women do struggle with, you know, for professional recognition and respect within our within our specialty and our workplace. And and when you look back at like I I look like a surgeon in the social media movement that occurred in 2015, that was designed to bring visibility to women in surgery. And I think for so long we have felt overlooked and unheard and not seen and not respected 
as physicians and surgeons. And, and, and you know, to raise a point of what happened in 2020, it wasn't just the George Floyd Black Lives Matter issue. One other event that was near and not so dear to my heart was the Men Bikini Movement. And I think surgeon identity and inclusion were tested by this paper, and I was one of the authors for it. Um, and, and what this manuscript created was an opportunity for women surgeons to demand to be seen, heard, and respected. Like Bernadette you know, talked about, it, it brought about rampant change within the SBS and the, the JBS. And I think really, I mean, that's what we just want to be seen and heard and treated like other surge, male surgeons. And, and that, um, you know, Shipper alluded to too. I mean, there's also the double whammy if, if, you know, if you're a woman of color and a surgeon. And I'll let Shipper talk to, about that now. Shipper. So um, I think um, the, the important steps um, to um, sort of recognize that there is a problem and that something needs to be done about it. That that's the first step, right? You know, acceptance uh, that there exists an issue. And so uh, the the fact that the society created the DEI task force. Um, my boss, Dr. Dahlman, is actually the president of the SVS, and I've been amazed at his commitment to you know carry these efforts through and codify them within uh, you know the governance structure of SVS, so that these changes. Are long-lasting, and they're not just you know dependent on who is in leadership, and they become part of the fabric and um, uh, structure of uh, the SVS itself. But it would require you know commitment from incoming leaders and f- future leaders of SVS to make sure that these things continue on, and um, that uh, diversity is not just a buzzword and it's not tokenism, because there's so much data and so much information that shows that diversity of background, diversity of thought, diversity of experiences, and that all comes through having people who look different than you and think different than you be on your team actually makes results better, patients do better, uh, your team performance is enhanced, and you can achieve much greater things uh, than you could possibly imagine if all everybody thought the same way. So, um, you know, that's where... Um, all the events of 2020, uh, I think, um, have been pivotal, especially within vascular surgery itself, too, like Erica mentioned. I think that uh, manuscript did create that watershed moment where, you know, when you're forced to look in the mirror and say, are, are we this? Is this who we are? And then say, no, we're not. We're going to change things and we're going to make sure that the efforts we had already started actually get accelerated. And uh, everybody who then you know, the medical students and the residents who look at vascular surgery can see that we are committed to it. We are making the changes that are necessary and, um, uh, you know, keep that momentum going. We, uh, I think Erica mentioned about the med bikini and this, this brought out the uh, issue of uh, inclusion of women in uh, panels and, and editorial boards and committees. Um, why, uh, in your opinion, uh, the uh, various conference panels, as well as editorial boards and uh, various committees, um, have been slow to get women involved? And what are the things we can do to improve that? Well, I think part of it is that, you know, you sort of choose your friends, you know, so part of it is, you know, you need to expand your 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 friends and who you know because when I sat there the years that I was putting things on committees it was sitting down with the vice president president elect and president and and looking at those that have self nominated which is good but it was recognition of your friends Bernadette's done a fabulous job working through all of this to get you know rules and regulations and things that are there. Um, and I, I think that's the biggest piece is, is making sure that it's transparent, inclusive. And I know when I put teams together, I make sure I look for gender, I look for race, I look for youth. I think you need to put younger people as well as more senior people on teams to do the right thing and get where you want to go. So I think doing all of that together 
and making people understand we have changed a lot. Now people can self-nominate themselves to be on committees. You heard Bernadette, there's limits of who can be on how many committees. And I think when we look back on what happened with that bikini and things, you know, I think part of it was trying to bring to attention some different attitudes of what's going on, but perhaps not asking all the questions of everybody about how you feel about it. Because I tell you, you know, I'll tell you a story back when, when I was a chair of surgery, one of my surgeons wanted to operate on his wife, a plastic surgeon. And I thought that was a really bad thing to do, you know. So I brought it to my team and I found out people had operated on their brothers and their parents and and this, I mean, I was like shocked. So even if you think the answer is you shouldn't operate on a family member, you'll find people that don't agree with you. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to change your mind. It just means that you need to ask that question to find out what's out there. Uh, so I think now there's there's lots of choices going on with that. And and I do think um, there's many things we can do to, to uh, support ourselves, sponsor others, and make sure you say yes a lot, you know? And, and I think part of it is say yes, see what it's like, and then you can exit if you want. But I think being very visible, being very um, positive, and then promoting each other, uh, I think that's the other thing we can make happen. Um, there's only two and a half percent of us that are African-American that are, are vascular surgeons. So we need to work on that as well. You know, So as you go with all diversity, it makes it better, just like Shipper said. Erica? Well, I do, I do think um, you know, the whole gender inequity, um, it's not really a lifestyle choice for women in medicine. It's, it's really a symptom of a system that has in the past preferentially existed for men. And I do think bringing in awareness of the underlying biases that people have, whether they be conscious or unconscious most of the time, um, has been an eye-opening event for a lot of people in 2020, which sort of, I think, blows women's minds that they're completely oblivious of these issues. Um, and recognizing that it's more than just understanding that biases do exist, but how can we overcome these biases? And you know, we've alluded to pay equity, support, you know, supporting and promoting and, and, and um, mentoring women, and not just mentoring, but also when you look at tweets, there tend to be more tweets by men for men versus men for women. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of little subtleties so it's it's sponsoring women in terms of promoting their papers, promoting you know, putting their names forward um, to speak or to moderate or to edit. It's it's a conscious effort, and and I think that's where the SBS and I think the women in, within the SBS have really rallied you know, to bring an awareness of the issues that we've faced in the past and have not been ignored, they've just been overlooked or have not even been seen. Shipra? Uh, I agree. I think, um, you know, the way to remedy some of these underrepresentation of women and uh, minorities in, you know, the leadership of SVS committees and editorial boards and things, A, is to recognize that that's an issue. So bringing it from that implicit unconscious uh, plane into the conscience that, okay, you know, this needs to be changed and then uh, instituting measures like transparency of self-nominations of, you know, keeping selections for term limits for making sure that, you know, um, they are being um, looked at by merit. And another thing I would add to these points that have already been raised is the int intentionality. You know, a lot of people are well-intentioned, uh, but they make assumptions for other people that, especially for women that, you know, oh, they have, they may not want this opportunity, even though they may be best suited for it. And I think that um, needs to go away. I think mer uh, judging things on and allowing for transparency in terms of nominations, as well as uh, recruitment, it allows for people to, um, you know, express their interest for what they want, instead of other people just making uh, value or preference judgments for what you think you may want for yourself. Um, I remember, Ron, uh, I, I was going through some difficult times and personally in the last couple of years, and I told him that I may not be able to 
you know, um, uh, do uh, some of the work that he may expect from me uh, because of, um, you know, my personal situation. And he said, that's okay. I will keep asking you and it is your prerogative if you want to keep, turn it down. And I really appreciated that. I think that, you know, if somebody had just made that judgment for me that, oh, this is not a good time for her to take on these roles, it would take that agency away from me. And that's where a lot of people, even though they are well-intentioned, make a mistake. You know, uh, Bernadette's boss saying that, okay, if you turned it down in the past, you shouldn't then be eligible for it now. That's, that's a mistake. You know, people, we should allow people to make these decisions for themselves um, to, you know, see what, when it's right for them and what sort of opportunities they are interested in. And then you would get people who are interested in the role, right for the role, and, you know, bring their best to those positions that they're being um, recruited to. Excellent. So um, from uh, our uh, talks this morning, um, I take it that the lessons for men is that we need to uh, respect women more. We need to uh, appreciate uh, their talent and uh, also to reconsider them uh, in the event that they say that they're not ready for it at that moment. And if opportunities arise again, they should be offered and considered for it. They should be encouraged uh, if they are deserving candidates, irrespective of gender. And uh, there has to be a increased inclusion. And you have to put yourself in their position to understand their perspective. As for women, and young people who are coming up, uh, they need to, uh, uh, young women who are training or are students and want to pursue a career in surgery, they need to believe in themselves. Uh, they need to ignore um, comments like, it's never going to happen or you'll not be able to do surgery or it's never been done before and say, uh, you watch it now, I will make it happen. And also, for the people who are already established as women uh, surgeons, they need to pay it forward. Uh, with this, I invite final comments from all of you, starting with Julie. Uh, it's been a pleasure to you. Yeah, I, I think you've, yeah, you've done a great job. And, and I think part of it is we benefit so much from having diversity and listen. I tell you, when I sit there and ask my teams to give me their opinion, you know, being a leader that invites uh, differences of opinion. Um, I've changed my mind to make that happen. I'm a better person now because I, I hang with other people. I, I think that's it and, and make no assumptions, you know, and, 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 and this actually helps men too, you know, with this whole, where we're going with, you know, COVID-19 and everything, we have to be flexible. They have to be open. And I think as we go forward, we need to listen to all of us and, and include all, all of us in our decisions and where we're going. Erica? Well, I think perpetuating and preserving a traditional male-dominated hierarchical model will satisfy the new mandate for diversity, inclusion, and equity. And um, you know, I think we can make surgery a better profession, not just for you know for women, but for for patients as well. And you know, if, if I were to say anything now, you know, a little homage to her time is now is to invite her, cite her, quote her, sponsor her, recognize her, and pay her. Super. I, I wholeheartedly agree with um, Erica's. Um, uh, you know, uh, sentiment that she talked about, I, I would add, pay her, promote her <laughs> uh, to to the, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he for she diktats as well as, you know, the, the mantra of sponsorship. Like, you know, we have to walk the walk and, uh, and not just talk the talk. So, um, you know, and thank you so much, Ramesh, for putting this together. I think uh, you've really captured um, sort of the essence of the moment. Uh, thank you very much, Julie, Erica, and Shipra, and also Bernadette, who left us earlier. Um, I think that the, it's 2021, and we need to have less egos and more heart, and support and encourage and sponsor and pay equally to men, uh, you know, all the women surgeons out there. So thank you for joining me, and uh, you have a great afternoon there.
All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by Radcliffe Vascular and is sponsored by Medtronic. To view the series, head to radcliffevascular.com forward slash vascular podcast. You can also find us on all well-known podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radcliffe Vascu. Thanks for listening.